This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley. And I'm Peter Sir. And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. On this morning's show, we'll be looking at Elena Ferrante's latest novel, The Lying Life of Adults. And writer Mary O'Donnell is coming in to bravely rise to the toaster challenge, but she'll also be telling us about her new forthcoming collection of poetry, Massacre of the Birds, soon to be published by Salmon. And we'll be looking at the poem that wouldn't go away in Ian Sansom's September the 1st, 1939, W.H. Auden and the Afterlife of a Poem. So the coffee's made. The toast is on. And the books are on the table. And you've brought in the new novel by Elena Ferrante. I mean, she's a writer surrounded by mystery, isn't she? I mean, people don't actually know who she is. Can, can you talk a bit about this and her? Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. Um, well, I I know Elena Ferrante's work, as I'm sure many of the listeners do, from novels such as The Days of Abandonment, Troubling Love, and then, of course, The Lost Daughter. Actually, that's soon to be a major motion picture directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal and starring the Oscar award winning Olivia Colman. But Ferrante, she's also the author of the four volumes known as the Neapolitan Quartet. So they include My Brilliant Friend, The Story of a New Name, Those Who Leave and Those Who Stay, and the last one, The Story of the Lost Child. They were all published by Europa Editions in English um, between 2012 and 2015. And of course, My Brilliant Friend, many of you listening might know it from the HBO series, which premiered in 2018. But since the 2002 publication of The Days of Abandonment, which was absolutely brilliant book, I thought, translated into English by the really nimble translator Anne Goldstein in 2005. Elena Ferrante has been known for her portraits of intense and I have to say very intelligent women. And they deal with the ugly side of female experience, infidelity, reluctant motherhood, competitive, complex relationships, husbands who leave them, all these kind of interesting topics. I suppose it was, I mean, the, the first Neapolitan novel, My Brilliant Friend, that that really made her a household name. Yeah, it did, actually. That's right. And um, well, the, the, the those series of four books, they tell the story of two girls, Leela and Lenu. They're raised in the 1950s in the same poor neighbourhood on the outskirts of Naples. And they're both really bright, intelligent girls and they're very equal in that respect. But Lenu is allowed to go to school past the fourth grade. And unfortunately, Leela is not. And the following decades show or kind of bear out the consequences like Leela marries early. She's she, you know, unfor- she has an unfortunate marriage. She works in a factory. She stays in the resides in the old neighborhood. But Leno, her friend, goes to college. She marries well. She becomes a successful feminist author. And all the while, a loyal friend that she is, she's convinced that it is her friend Leela, not she, who is the brilliant one. And the books were really a huge literary achievement and an international sensation, translation to dozens of languages. And all the while, Ferrante was in a way protected by the privacy that she afforded herself really by her pseudonym. And when the final book of this quartet, The Story of the Lost Child, came out in 2015, Ferrante told Vanity Fair that because of her pseudonym, she said, I have gained a space of my own, a space that is free, where I feel active and present. To relinquish it would be very painful. So she she really, really needed her privacy to write. 
But unfortunately for her, as we mentioned already, an adaptation of My Brilliant Friend for HBO made Ferrante a total celebrity. And then, of course, in 2016, I think it was, um, a journalist claimed to uncover her identity which I'm sure actually put strain on the free creative life that Elena Frante had enjoyed up until then. But you're here actually to talk about her new book, which is The the Lying Life of Adults. Yeah, I am. I mean, this is a Frante's new novel. And I have to say it was met with reading, reading vigils all over Italy, like fans were queuing up to buy copies of this book at midnight. And one reviewer commented, it's only a matter of time before a Ferrante cafe springs up on the road that the character Giovanna lives in, San Giacomo del Capri. I hope I'm um, pronouncing that correctly, Peter. Selling panzerotti and pasta crosciutta, their local fried snacks that uh, the character and her father eat after school. I'm already getting hungry and wishing I was there. What's the new novel about, Anna? Well, The Lying Life of Adults, it begins with Giovanna, a shy, obedient 12-year-old. And she's growing up. It's very different to My Brilliant Friend because she's growing up not in a poor part of Naples, but in a middle class part of Naples in the early 1990s. But one day she overhears her parents discussing her and she had once been beautiful, great at school, adored by her father. But now heading into teenage years, she feels slow, she feels misshapen, she's struggling at school. And her mother blames her bad grades to what she calls the changes of early adolescence. But her father disagrees and he says adolescence has nothing to do with it. She's getting the face of Victoria. And this is the beginning of the book. And we're all wondering who is Victoria? But she is actually his estranged sister and someone, he says, for whom ugliness and nastiness were perfectly matched. So she just sounds so ugly and awful and to be described to be like similar to her. This was a terrible, shocking thing for a 13 year old girl. So the dad's words set Giovanna off on a series of events, really life changing events where she she goes to try and find this aunt and to unravel the reasons behind the family fallout. And who is who is this aunt and, and how does she impinge on Giovanna's life? Well, I mean, at first, Giovanna has never met her. So, th- so that's a starting point. And the woman's face, she goes searching for old photographs, but the aunt's face has been blacked out with marker in every old photo in the house. And all Giovanna knows about her aunt is that her parents, number one, detest her. The way you detest a lizard that runs up your bare leg. I mean, it's kind of a description that stays with you. To have the face of this Aunt Victoria, she's been told by them, is to be ugly beyond redemption. So her parents try to reassure her. They say, oh, no, listen, we were just being playful. We were teasing. But Giovanna, the young girl, isn't convinced. And the only thing that will console her is meeting her aunt herself. But that means that she has to go to the poor, unfamiliar part of Naples where her father grew up. And you realise she doesn't really know her way around Naples beyond the middle class area she lives in. But to her surprise, her dad, her father actually allows her to do this. And the only rule he makes is that his daughter must not listen to her aunt. She's to put, he says, wax in your ears like Odysseus because he's convinced that his sister will try her best to turn his daughter against him. Does she meet her and, and, and what's she like? Yeah, well, I mean, that's the excitement of the book. You're actually really interested in, you know, is she going to meet her? What's she like? So Victoria is exactly as Giovanna's parents have described her. She's rude. She's bitter. She's larger than life. She's got no boundaries. She's really eager to corrupt her young niece and to win her over and set her up against her parents. But weirdly, she is actually surprisingly beautiful. And she can be warm and she becomes the only adult in Giovanna's life to speak openly. 
Like she curses Giovanna's father. She teases her niece for how she's dressed. Look how ridiculous you are. All in pink, pink shoes, pink jacket, pink barrette. And she tells her also juicy details about her affair with the married man, Enzo, which is the cause of the family rift. Enzo's now dead and... Giovanna thinks, oh, what a story. Oh, to learn to speak like that outside of every convention of my house. And so, of course, they bond. And Victoria, the aunt, tells her to watch her parents carefully. And so Giovanna starts to look and she looks closer. Victoria says, no, look closer, look closer. But the more the young girl spies on her mum and dad, the more she watches their marriage begin to crumble. But it's also a book about adolescence, isn't it? I mean, is she good at capturing that particular time in in a teenager's life? Yeah, I think very much so. I mean, adolescence is, I think, very rich territory for Elena Ferrante. Um, Like in many of her other books, she's a great capacity for capturing the moody world of teenagers. And she does so with great vividness and uh, kind of a psychological insight that is really memorable. I mean, we follow in this book Giovanna's development for a 13, from a 13 year old to a young woman of 16. So it spans a good few years. And I think Ferrante's genius is to stay with that awful discomfort of this particular time in her life, which I remember as well. I mean, anyone who's gone through it remembers it. She's got this ungainly teenage body and she starts to move between the Naples of her parents and that of her aunt. And she's kind of ditching her class and dressing in black and she becomes mean and anxious about her life. And her great fear, of course, is that she's going to turn out to be as ugly as her Aunt Victoria. And of course, because her parents are breaking up, they're really incapable of guiding her or advising her because you realise that they are more lost than she is. And she, she, she observes closely their mistakes, their betrayals of each other. And finally, she decides... You know, she, she, it's a very thinking book, actually. Finally, she decides that the body, and she says, agitated by the life that rides within, consuming it, does stupid things that it shouldn't do. It sounds, it sounds to me like the, a lot of the themes that are there in, in the other work, like fascinated with beauty or the lack of a class, education and study, you know, freeing you from poverty. I mean, they're all there. I mean, is there... Something is there anything in this that distinguishes or distinguishes this new novel from the the other Ferrante works? Yeah, well, I mean that is true, Peter. A good point. <laughs> but I think what what immediately distinguishes this book from its predecessors, um, as I said earlier, is its focus on the upper echelons of Neapolitan society in the early nineteen nineties. I mean, the quartet began in poor working class neighbourhood of Naples, but the lying life of adults opens amongst the educated, the rich. Um, I forgot to say, Giovanna's father is a teacher at a really prestigious high school. He's an aspiring Marxist intellectual. He is an unfailingly courteous man. And Giovanna, she loves him like he's her father. And her mother teaches Greek and Latin and she proofreads romance novels. And Giovanna has best friends. They're, They're pretty, they're Angela and the poetic Ida. And they're the daughters of her friends, best friends. And they're wealthy, Mariano and Costanza. And she and her friends are taught that they need to feel proud to have been born female. So it's a very liberal, educated society that she's moving in. And and they all seem very happy in their bourgeois happiness until the day, as I said, Giovanna overhears that fateful conversation between her mother and father. And she sets off to cast aside her privileged upbringing and to go into the rougher, tougher parts of Naples, reminiscent of the quartet, I suppose. So if, if you had to pick one thing, I mean, what's what's the thing you like most about it? There were so many things I loved, but 
I suppose overall, what was the one thing? I I have to say, I loved the interiority of it. I loved being right inside Giovanna's head as she develops from the age of 13 to 16. But to go back to the title again, I was also fascinated by Ferrante's understanding of the act of lying. Because I'd read in a 2020 interview, Ferrante said, to tolerate existence, we lie. And we lie above all to ourselves. Falsehoods protect us, mitigate suffering, allow us to avoid the terrifying moment of serious reflection. They dilute the horrors of our time. They even save us from ourselves. Well, I suppose literary fiction is also a lie, isn't it? I mean, that's according to her. I mean, isn't that, isn't that her thing? Yeah, I mean, that's true. Yeah, yeah. And, but she says, but a lie that is made purposely to always tell the truth. That's brilliant, isn't it? So, I mean, in the lying life of adults, Giovanna learns that the grown-ups in her life have been lying to her. But uh, Giovanna as well is capable of lying. And that's what's interesting, too. I mean, she lies to her parents. She she doesn't really, she downplays her visits to the aunt. She lies to her friends. She's great at covering up to the beautiful Juliana that she's in love with her fiancé the charismatic Roberto and the, uh, there's a bit of romance uh, goes on there or an imagining of romance and there's also a trip to Milan so I, I did love the Italy bit as well added to the interiority yeah and then just to, to, to end I, I, I suppose really what it's about is a young girl growing up and saying you know I need my independence I need to move on and I suppose home is a place that we must all leave we all, we all got that feeling as teenagers and at the end I really loved she's heading to Venice with the young emerging Ida, the young Ida. And she says um, she will become an adult as no one ever had before. That was Enda talking about Elena Ferrante, The Lying Life of Adults, translated by Anne Goldstein and it's published by Europa Editions. And as always, details are available on booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. A Husband's Lament for the Massacre of the Birds I wrote this poem after discovering that five billion birds fly through Europe every year, every autumn, and about one billion of them are killed by humans. And then I was thinking about our garden. So this is the husband's lament. He does this by counting. He does this by digging. Oh, loss, loss, for the swallows have not returned. Loss, for the neap tide shows no sandpiper nor green shank. And he digs the garden to plant what will attract all comers of wing. All are welcome in his green field, the swifts that have not returned to crisscross the sky, pigeons long shot and bagged, and songbirds that in Europe are vanishing, glued, poisoned, trapped, so that the full-bellied can dine in a rustic restaurant in Tuscany. He welcomes too in his garden dream the fan-tailed warbler glued to death in Cyprus in an agony of open beak. Chaffinch, blackcap, quail and thrush. Oh, loss, loss as the songs die and little throats close against the final mutilation. He will continue to prepare each year this place for the birds, and surely a man can beat his chest and cry out to his neighbour. Let us bellow in rage, let us bellow in sorrow, let us plant these spaces to make havens for the hunted.
And that was Mary O'Donnell reading her poem, A Husband's Lament for the Massacre of the Birds, from her forthcoming collection, Massacre of the Birds, to be published in autumn of this year by Salmon Press. We are really delighted to have Mary in as our Toaster Challenge guest today and to talk to us about a book that has moved her in some way. As many of you know, Mary O'Donnell is one of Ireland's best-known contemporary authors. Her seven poetry collections include Spider-Man's Third Avenue Rhapsody, Unlegendary Heroes, both with Salmon Poetry, and Those April Fevers, published by ARC Publications. Her poetry has been widely translated. She is a talented and diverse writer. Her novels include The Lightmakers, The Elysium Testament, and Where They Lie. A volume of essays on her work, Giving Shape to the Moment, The Art of Mary O'Donnell, was published in 2018 by Peter Lang. And her third short story collection, Empire, was published by Arlen House in 2018. Mary is also a really gifted essayist, and her essay, My Mother in Drumlin Country, published in New Hibernia Review, was listed among the notable essays and literary nonfiction of 2017 in Best American Essays. Mary is also a regular invited guest at literary festivals and events in Ireland and internationally. She's a member of Aesona and she lives in County Kildare with her husband, Martin, and they have a grown up daughter, Anna. Mary O'Donnell, you are very welcome. Thank you very much. And it's very exciting to be on this podcast, actually. I've been very listening to it for weeks. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, that yeah. You, you've been enjoying it. That's thumbs oh, yeah. up from Mary O'Donnell. Delighted to hear that. <laughs> so, Mary, just listening there to the, the um, your biography there, short story writer, essayist, novelist, poet, you've been publishing since 1990 and you seem to thoroughly enjoy writing in a variety of forms. Where did this love of writing first start? Was it back in Monaghan as a young schoolgirl or was it later in your life? I mean, I know you're a very generous supporter of writers. I was also wondering, was there a particular writer in your life that first got you started? I think, um, I, it, yeah, it all began back in Monaghan. I, I think maybe growing up in the country and then it was a it was a kind of a bookish household, though we had no literary connections. And I used to just maybe sometimes I'd I would either start writing or I'd start playing the piano or I'd start drawing. I was just drawn to those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And um, so it began back there. There wasn't really anybody leaning in on me, I'd say, when I was very young, Um, Mm -hmm. apart from Patrick Kavanagh, in that the the discovery that we had a, a national poet who came from Monaghan. And, you know, at that time in the 1960s, I think... I think many Irish people living in the country suffered from an inferiority complex in that we assumed mm. nobody could, would be interested in where we were from or anything like that. And everyone hated our accents and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, yeah. And so to discover Patrick Kavanagh was amazing. And then in my early 20s, um, the late Eugene McCabe very kindly read an early short story of mine and his really honest comments were very very helpful because he also mm. said something positive as well as something yeah. that I could work on. Mm-hmm. Well actually we paid a tribute to him on Books for Breakfast just recently as well. What an amazing writer to have first encourage you and also to have the ghost of Patrick Kavanagh there to support you is brilliant as well. Well actually um, I, I was very lucky to have got a sneak preview of your manuscript um, before before you came on. It's a wide ranging collection with many political poems. There are poems that deal with humanitarian issues, children murdered in Syria, the plight of immigrants, direct provision, 
the ferocious wounds inflicted on women in poems like 20 Inches of Hair, or I'm thinking of a poem like It Wasn't a Woman, or hashtag Me Too, 12 Remembered Scenes and a Line, with its brutal litany of violations against women and children. So I was just wondering, Mary, um, there's such a variety there of poems. Did you find it hard to balance the poetry with politics in this collection? Yeah, it, I, I always do, do. Well, it's not, I probably am quite political, really. But um, a problem that I have is, I, I, or it's not a problem, but the fashion is, I think, to write a book of poetry that, that goes through one theme. And mm-hmm. I can never do that. Uh, because I'm, I am drawn in all kinds of directions. I'm a bit of a magpie. So mm-hmm. and none of my poetry books <laughs> will hammer away <laughs> at one theme. I just can't yeah. do it. Um, but yeah, the things that were on my mind, of course, like the Me Too movement, which uh, aspects of it bothered me. And then I actually began to think about, um, if I actually tracked back through my own life, because everything that's in that poem is what has happened to me. Yeah. And the things that I dismissed, quite mm. often you know so yeah. you know I thought that was there but then also there's the there's the constant pull of the the healing force that is nature that is yeah. a part of my life and then there is also the fact that I am essentially my mother's sole carer and she is 93 mm. and so the encounter with old age and that transition is really bearing down and into my life at present yeah, so I, I had to write about all those things. I know. I suppose really you were writing about your life and there's such a wide range of poetry there, such a variety. I, I felt actually they were quite an articulate um, expression of your life in the moment in which you were writing. But there's also a great kind of honesty and lightness of touch to it. You spoke of your mother there. I really liked your poem, um, My Mother's Sorrow Diary, where you quite humorously describe going on a journey with her through Spain from Malaga to Jerez, filthiest town I've ever seen, she said. And she'd scream if my husband attempted Spanish one more time in his gracias senores. I think do you, you obviously think, Mary, it is important to bring in that likeness of touch and humour as well into such a wide ranging collection. Well, I do really, because I have a sense of the absurd, you know, like it's just <laughs> yeah. a sort of, you know, like it is, I, I do, I, I do find things very funny sometimes. Thank yeah. God. Otherwise exactly. you'd jump off a cliff, you know. <laughs> And also travel, travel features in the in the poems. I really enjoyed that because we're all kind of in semi-lockdown at the moment. You'd references to Amsterdam, Sao Paulo, Argentina, Spain. Travel is obviously very important to you. Yeah, well, it, it certainly has been. Um, and some of it has come through my work as a writer. Some of it has come just through holidays and say the exploration of Spain when our daughter was young and studying Spanish, you know, things yeah. like that. Um it is, it's just the encounter with the other. And yet now yeah. we are so global. That, I mean, it, it is a great privilege and it is a white Western privilege to travel. We have felt we could just fly or motor into any country just because until now. And I suppose yeah. I'm rethinking that whole thing now, you know. It's, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It is an extreme privilege to do that sort of thing. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and yeah, I, I know. You know, I remember once being in being, being in Egypt on a on a one of these cruises down the Nile, and as we were passing by a certain village, all the children were jumping up and down and waving at us. And I remarked to the Englishman beside me, I said, I just said casually, I said, "Boy, this country needs a revolution," because they were quite mm-hmm. clearly subsistence living people. And he replied to me, "But they're happy that way." 
And you mm-hmm. see, that's what we as Westerners have to resist the whole time. Mm-hmm. People are not happy in physical misery. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what's so good about your collection, I think, because, I mean, one of the poems I really loved was Against the Vanishing, um, where you say, see the white playboys pose with rifles over zebra, elephant or cake buffalo, as if this action was radiant in a way, as if what that man said to you was righteous. Or is it radiant to hold a rifle over these beautiful creatures? And you speak about at the lakeshore of conscience. Could you just explain to the listeners what, what you mean by that? Gosh, can I even explain it to myself? Um, I, I had been I had been thinking actually about Martin Luther and the mm-hmm. the act of the act of conscience, and yeah. um, I was thinking that um, it is only by um, raising and activating our own consciousnesses, really activating them, that we can possibly hope, if it's not too late, to to encounter what's happening to the planet at the moment. Mm-hmm. It is a question of conscience. So you know, yeah. every time you rinse out your let's say your dog's tins before you put it in you you do really need to you need to rinse that tin out properly yeah otherwise it'll contaminate the whole truck but um yeah it's a question of conscience to try and keep life going yeah and i think also the poems have beautiful descriptions of nature the fluted birch the nippled oak buds i love the blackwater river a slim brown god slow soaking drumlin silt mary you must you really must enjoy encountering nature do you because your descriptions are absolutely wonderful i think it makes me very happy sometimes i do find mm. it um a great consolation at times and that little river Blackwater, it's so inconsequential, you know, uh, up around. It's a small river in Monaghan, which feeds into the Ban, which feeds into Loch Ney. It's not mm-hmm. big and gushing, but yeah. Um, yeah, I do. I do love it. It was always part of my childhood. Yeah, I know. And it, it, what I feel about this collection is, as I started off by saying, it is wide ranging. Um, you are very good the way you address issues, but it ends, I think, on a huge note of hope. You have a wonderful poem called The Future Waves, A Yellow Hat. And I actually love that. Um, I love that it is. It's, it ends on a very positive word as well. And I was wondering, just at the end of this little chat that we're having about your book, would you mind reading that poem for us? And I just want to wish you the very best with your collection, Mary. It'll be coming out in October at some stage, will it? Yeah, I haven't settled on a date yet because it will be an online launch. So mm-hmm. as soon as the book is back from the printers, which should be next week, I'll probably, it'll probably be two weeks after that or something like that. OK, well, that's very exciting. So perhaps we'll just end here with you reading that poem and then we'll move on to the exciting toaster challenge. <laughs> OK. <laughs> the future waves a yellow hat. The past, an underworld chamber. We visit habitually drunk from the river of forgetfulness, brows perplexed as we struggle with bodies, ailing, misaligned, that let us down. That easy touch, that musk, a morning sigh and shared cafetiere escape our senses. We erase the future too, storied with our lives, ignorant of dead loves waving hands and hats to catch our attention. If we remember the future, quickly, like skinning a rabbit, exposing the bone, we will never look back. It greets us effortlessly, waving its yellow hat as we cross a high bridge from opposite directions, smiling. 
And what a wonderful positive end there. So Mary, thank you very much for, re- for reading from your forthcoming collection, Massacre of the Birds, soon to come out from Salmon. And now we're going to move on to the toaster challenge. Peter is getting the bread ready there, aren't you, Peter? Mm-hmm. He's going to put it in the toaster. And Mary's going to tell us about a recent book she's been reading that has really touched her. So we're going to put the bread in. One, two, three, and off you go, Mary. Okay, uh, this is it's an, the first novel by the, the poet Ocean Vuong called On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. And it came out last year uh, to a certain amount of acclaim. Um, there were some qualifications about it. Essentially, it is the story of, it's a coming of age story of a boy who is called Little Dog because the superstition in Vietnam was if you give someone a very innocuous name, the evil spirits won't take the child. So his name was Little Dog, and he's the son of Vietnamese immigrant parents in the US. Now, on it is really autofiction. It's a novel, but it's autofiction, and it really steer, steers very close to the seam of Ocean Vuong's life. He's the son of a woman who herself was, her, her father was an American army guy, and they ended up in, in a camp in Malaysia before eventually transferring to America, being sent to America. And his mother, Rose, worked in a nail bar all her life. And it's really about the distance between this boy trying to fit into the American way of life as an immigrant. And as he's advancing, gathering, acquiring language, acquiring knowledge, being very brilliant, his mother never really quite gets a lot of English, and she is violent towards him. She adores him, but she's frustrated. She hits him. She throws milk on him at times. And as a teenager then, so we're, we're getting Ocean Vuong nudging his way into American life. And on a certain level, he seems to have followed a, a classic American upwards trajectory making his way from being an outsider through transformational experiences into privileged literary circles. But he's, he's writing as if in a letter to his mother. And it's a very tender book. And in it, when he's a teenager, he, he meets this other boy called Trevor, whose father on a, on a tobacco leaf farm. And this is where he has his first sexual experience. And it is, it's really about... They, it's partly about that experience. He's gay, but you, it's just part. You know, it's just part of the book. And the essential gesture of this novel really is probably in its title. In early youth, there's a brief, authentic flowering of life and happiness, and it can't be carried forward into our grown-up, settled existence. You know, that doesn't ever really happen. But there is a frankness and precision to the writing, which I like. And I've, I've heard lots of people say that it's more a writer's novel than a reader's novel. Now, I don't know how true that is, but I found it incredibly moving. And also, I also liked the things that he interjects at times about writing. I'm just going to read one of them. He says, that's what writing is after all the nonsense. Getting down so low, the world offers a merciful new angle a larger vision made of small things, the lint suddenly a huge sheet of fog exactly the size of your eyeball. 
So he does make these statements about writing that really appealed to me. And I, I found him very, very persuasive and, and moving. And also his, you know, the presence of death and decrepitude as his grandmother dies is very, very tenderly and frankly handled. And again, it's one of those books that awakens conscience also when mm -hmm. we realize that I think it's over six, there are over six million people in transit or as living as refugees at any time at the moment, you know, which is mm -hmm. huge. So Mary, have you reached the end of your Toaster Challenge there? Have you any more insights to this book? Um, well, I think that, I suppose I haven't really got a great deal more to say. I think that, yeah. I think that it is an absolutely incredible novel, which, which is really about, it's about many things. It's about a boy's development. It's about abuse. It's about the, the dogged resistance of, an, of immigrants to the harshness of life and how they just, you know, really knuckle down in the harshest of ways as an, as an underclass, essentially, in, in American and other cultures. But the, the story is very tender as well. And I, I would yeah. really recommend it. Yeah, I have to say, Mary, thank you so much uh, for sharing that with us, because I've seen it. It's it's a really top of the bestseller list, this book, but I haven't actually read it. And it just sounds like quite a remarkable piece of writing. Um, the Los Angeles Times said it was a series of high notes that trembles exquisitely, almost without break, which is such uh, high praise, really, isn't it? Yeah. I'm really looking forward to reading it. That is Mary was talking about Ocean Vuong on Earths Were Briefly Gorgeous. And as Mary said, it reveals so much about immigrants and the life they lived and nail salons and his struggle to become a writer as well. And now he's actually achieved huge success, hasn't he, Mary? I mean, he's also a poet as well, isn't he? Yeah, he won the T.S. Eliot Prize with his first collection of poetry, which was called Night Sky with Exit Wounds. And that was in 2016 or 2017. But yeah. I do wonder where a writer like him can go next, because mm -hmm. both these books concentrate very remarkably on on the self and on his yeah. experience, and which is, a, I suppose, it's an experience of trauma. So you wonder what will happen next. I know, but isn't that exciting as well, I suppose, about yeah. the journey of a writer. So he's obviously mm -hmm. a writer that we're all going to be looking out for to see, as Mary said, what is coming next. Well, Mary, I just want to say thank you so much for coming into Books for Breakfast today and talking to us about your new book, The Massacre of the Birds, a beautiful book of poetry, which is soon to come out. And also to recommend to our listeners, Ocean Vuong's On Earths Were Briefly Gorgeous, published by Penguin, and Mary's book will be published by Salmon Press. So Mary, thank you very much. We're off to have some coffee. Thank you. And, okay, see you soon. Thanks, Mary. Bye. Bye. So, Peter, you've been reading a book about the poet W.H. Auden. Well, yeah, actually a book about just one poem by Auden, the famous, notorious, troublesome September the 1st, 1939. Mm, that's an interesting description. Well, what's so troublesome about it? Well, you know, I suppose in one way it's one of, Land sorry, one of Auden's landmark poems. And it was written shortly after he decamped to New York from England, of which more later. And the title uh, refers to Germany's invasion of Poland. And it's a t an, at an attempt, I suppose, to sum up that historical moment and the failures of the low, uh, dishonest decade leading up to it. And ultimately, maybe in spite of the chaos that it evokes, to find some possibility of, of hope. I mean, maybe I'll just I'll give you a blast of it just so you know 
where I am, what the, what the, what the context is. So mm-hmm. he's, he's, he starts off famously, I sit in one of the dives on 52nd Street, uncertain and afraid as the clever hopes expire of a low dishonest decade. Waves of anger and fear circulate over the bright and darkened lands of the earth, obsessing our private lives. The unmentionable odour of death offends the September night. And I'll just read another little bit, which which is, I suppose, part of the controversy of it as, as well, towards the end where he says, All I have is a voice to undo the folded lie, the romantic lie in the brain of the sensual man in the street and the lie of authority whose buildings grope the sky. There is no such thing as the state and no one exists alone. Hunger allows no choice to the citizen or the police. We must love one another or die. And, you know, that was this idea of, of loving one another or, or die and, the, and as he ends it, to show an affirming flame. I mean, you know, in, in a way, it's like it's a very public poem, a bit like and, and indebted to Yeats's Easter 1916. But the thing is that as, almost as soon as he'd written it, he began to turn away from it. He kind of felt that it was, I don't know, somehow self-aggrandizing or even dishonest. And so when it came time to publish his collected poems in, for instance, 1945, he left out the famous stanza, the one that ends, we must love one another or, or die. And then he went round, he used to start to say that, you know, I loathe this poem and he, it didn't appear in other collections and he starts to refuse permission to editors who asked to reprint it in anthologies. He did allow it to be published in one anthology a bit later, but then he changed the, the line, we must love one another and die. I suppose he felt, you know, we die anyway, so you can't have a choice between love and death. So he, he changed it to we must love one another and die, you know, which is kind of a bit of a pity. Yeah. I mean, he considered um, it to be trash and he was kind of ashamed, was he, Peter Robert? Um, which is, is quite a fierce kind of negative um, reaction to his own poem, which is really quite an amazing poem, really, isn't it? Well, you see, things, I mean, it, it, it divides people still. I mean, Ian Forster, for instance, you know, I mean, he says, because Auden once wrote, we must love one another or die, he can command me to follow him. So people, you know, people, a lot of people loved it. And, you know, in a way... You know, it's it's obviously we know that you know we die. He, he he's not. He, I mean, he's maybe taking very literally, and mm. it's not really a choice between. You know, it's a choice between love on the one hand and maybe destruction and hate and evil on on the other. Is the kind of thing that 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 he's getting at. So, but yeah, I mean, mm. I suppose it's yeah, it's it still divides people. I mean, it it keeps coming back though, and he and even in spite of his attempts to kind of um, put it away or get rid of it or disown it, he never quite succeeds um, in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I remember as a child, my father was always quoting those lines and they really stuck with me. But I, I'm just wondering to get back to the book again. Surely it must be ultimately a very, very good poem if Ian Sansom has written a whole book about it. Yeah, it's a funny thing. I mean, it's a funny book in, in, in lots of ways. I mean, it's a book about Auden, September 1st, 1939. But it's also very much a book about Ian Sansom writing about Auden, September 1st, 1939. You know, he spent 25 years writing it, as he keeps reminding us. I mean, Reagan's come and gone, Obama's come and gone. There have been countless wars in the interim. And the world's, you know, a completely different place mm-hmm. when he started writing it. And he keeps 
kind of beating himself up a bit, pretending or pretending to beat himself up about his dilatoriness in, you know, producing the book. And that's part of its comedy, because I should say from the beginning, this is actually a very funny book. Mm. It's actually laugh out loud funny often. I mean, I haven't read too many poetry books that have mm-hmm. had that um, effect. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like Ian Samson is a bit of a personality. What's so funny? I mean, I'm just wondering, how can a book about a serious poem be funny? Is it to do with Ian Samson's own kind of response to it? Well, I suppose, you know, it's, it's because it breaks all the rules that we associate with writing about poetry, you know, a certain kind of critical decorum or objectivity or academic distance. So instead we have Sansom's life, we have his wife and his children in there, his humble origins, his defence of commuters and the ordinary man, ordinary existence, his grandfather's vegetable patches in there, being corrected in a tutorial when he says... Walter Benjamin instead of Walter Benjamin or, you know, so the the book is partly about or pretending to be in, in ways about this failure, which is not entirely a failure since we're reading the book now. So, you know, he's very, failure seems to be a, a, a kind of theme for him. He's very self-deprecating. He tells a story about being introduced at a reading as the popular novelist C.J. Sansom and watching half the audience disappear when they learn the the dismal truth that's only Ian <laughs> Sansom, you know. But I suppose, so writing about Odin's poem is <laughs> a way funny. of indirectly writing about himself and his life and there's lots of asides in brackets and it's a book that it loves interrupting itself. Uh, you know, he, he keeps breaking off and uh, to tell us about things that have happened to him. Like, I've slowly come to realise that I do not possess the necessary skills to become a great writer, a serious writer, a writer, frankly, who does not tell other writers to fuck off, you know. So it's a kind of a meta book in in, in that way, mm-hmm. sort of a blokey. But at the same time, it's a very smart book because he knows a huge amount of about Auden. Um, you know, he wrote a PhD about Auden. It's, a, it's, you know, it's a biography of a poem and a poet and his social and indeed political context. You know, it's the biography of a mind, you know, not... Maybe you wonder, like, is it Auden's mind or is it Ian Sanson's mind? It's a bit of both. Yeah. Yeah, I like that idea, actually, that it's also about Ian Sanson's life as a writer. Well, just the way you're describing it. But it also brings in Auden and his response to it. And that, I mean, as you said, it's it sounds like it's blokey in parts, but this is a really smart writer who knows this poem really well. And I'm just wondering, why has he singled this particular poem out? Well, it's funny because, you know, it's, it's one of Auden's best known poems still. And you know, one of his still most famous and to some people maybe one of his greatest. And it's because Auden, you know, tries to do so much in it. I mean, he moves from this intimate, personal kind of address at the beginning when he's sitting in his dive in, in, you know, 52nd Street. And then, you know, you have big Mm -hmm. historical perspectives swooping back through time. You know, you have Thucydides is writing about Athens and democracy and tyranny and you've got the skyscrapers of New York and then you've got the war and, you know, so he's... And then he's coming back to kind of commuters in New York and, and you know, um, about show, trying to show an affirming flame. So it's kind of, he's he's trying to do just that, that that huge amount of it, of, you know. But I think also there's the other, the other aspect of it is because he's writing it in New York in the first place. And, and, and that's part of the controversy about Auden himself. And it's very much that English division between, you know, the early Auden and the later Auden. And that means... Mm-hmm. The Auden before 1939, when he left for America and, and afterwards, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and that whole thing was such a huge controversy, wasn't it, about him leaving for the States, um, you know, like just just as war was happening. And and then can you just describe that, why that caused so much controversy and why people were really furious well, with him? Sure. I mean, I mean. Sansom, he makes it very clear that there were, there were many in England who felt this to be a betrayal. I mean, same with Christopher Isherwood, who left at the same time. And it wasn't helped by the fact that when Auden did return, he was wearing the uniform of an American major. But he quotes, for instance, the uh, the novelist Anthony Powell, you know, the dance to the music of time man. 
And he said when he heard of Auden's death in 1973, I'm delighted that shit has gone. It should have happened years ago, scuttling off to America in 1939 with his boyfriend, like a, like a, he couldn't even bring himself to, to finish the sentence. Mm-hmm. And like that was actually a quite yeah. widely shared view. So there was a visceral resentment of Isherwood and Auden for having left the country in its hour of need. And that was reflected, for instance, in the fact that he wasn't included in a lot of post-war British poetry anthologies. And by the same token, he wasn't an American poet, so he wasn't included in a lot of American anthologies either. And this book, it opens in 1956, and he's just been made Oxford Professor of Poetry. And um, he went to Oxford himself, didn't he, Auden? Yeah, he did. He left in 1938 with a very bad degree, a kind of poor third. And so here he is now back having beaten Harold Nicholson and, you know, G. Wilson Knight, the famous Shakespearean scholar. But he said, you know, he said something interesting in his, in his inaugural lecture. He said, speaking for myself, the questions which interest me most when reading a poem are two. The first is technical. Here is a verbal contraption. How does it work? The second is, in the broadest sense, I suppose, moral. What kind of guy inhabits this poem? What is his notion of the good life or the good place? And that's the job that Sansom gives himself to ask, you know, to ask Auden's questions of his own poem, September the 1st, 1939. How does it work and what kind of guy in, inhabits mm. the poem? So he may not, I mean, it's not even like, it's not even clear. I mean, Sansom doesn't even particularly like this poem um, in lots of ways. Uh, he says, but he recognised that it's an important document mm-hmm. and that, you know, it's an influ- it was an influential and popular poem. It shows Auden poised in his exile at the end of that low dishonest decade, you know, trying to, trying to sum up all that. And he, he does, I mean, he gets down to analysing the poem almost comically in some ways because you're sort of scary, like it's kind of scary. I mean, you, you know, you're spending pages on the opening words. I sit in one of the dives. You know, what does I mean? Who is the I? Why is he sitting? What kind of place is he in? What kind of dive? Is it a gay bar, a gay pickup joint? Does it matter? Mm-hmm. And so suddenly you're kind of, you have several chapters into the book and he's mm-hmm. only done a, a couple of lines and his, his wife is there saying, are you really going to write a chapter on every word in the poem? You know, in, in you know, it's as if he's playing a game of kind of cod scholarship, but he does, I mean, he does talk also about the poem from a technical point of view. I mean, you know, he does kind of talk about the metres and rhyme, you know, to an extent. And I mean, you know, Auden believed in metrical order and regularity. He believed that they work as a primary defence against disorder. Sansom reminds us. I, I could imagine myself actually asking you the same question, Peter, if you're doing something like that. Are you really going to talk about it word by word, line by line? I like that idea of approaching a poem with how does it work and what kind of guy inhabits this poem. It's it's a very good approach, I think. But just overall, Peter, do you think, is the poem still relevant or is it just some sort of a kind of historical curiosity? Yeah, well, the funny, the funny thing is, I mean, the first thing is to say that it never it never died in spite of Auden's attempts to suppress it. And then he, mm-hmm. and then Sansom also reminds us of the contemporary relevance. For instance, after the 9-11 attack on the World Trade Centre, the Auden poem seemed to strike a, a huge chord and newspapers published the poem mm-hmm. on their editorial pages. It was discussed and circulated everywhere. And you think, why, why did this happen? And well, you know, it mentioned September. It's set in New York. Mm-hmm. It seemed to be the right poem in the right place for a wrong time, according to, to Sansom. And even like fashion models were calling their sons Auden. You know, so so there was so there was that. I mean, he does. I mean, I mean, Sansom does think it's a, it's um, a deeply flawed poem. But I like how he says you can admire a poem and spend years studying it, even if it turns out to be diseased, sinister, or affected. And he quotes Herbert Reed on what he calls the intermittency of genius: how good poets can flower in youth and wither in old age. But also, you know, a poem can you know its genius can blossom and wither in the same poem. You know, at least as as he admits, thank goodness mm. that we don't need writers always to be right. There'd be no writers left to study. Yeah, I think that's that's really right. And so, OK, Peter, I, I'm just wondering now, overall, 
What's the conclusion? What can you, are we as listeners, take away from this book? Is Auden a really great poet? Is that what Samson is saying? What, what, what is your overall? Yeah, you know, it's funny because he, he asks himself the question, is Auden a good poet? And he says, or is the poem any good? He says, uh, you know, absolutely not. Good is not the word. It's far mm. too shocking and too strange to be good. Auden was, was so ambitious, so ruthless, so restless, so wide ranging that his work becomes vulnerable to every criticism and attack. You can say that, you can say almost anything and everything about it. Mm-hmm. But he says, if Auden is the scapegoat of English poetry, and he is and deserves to be, then he also is its saviour, you know? So it's like, question, uh, is it, is he a good poet? No, what he actually is, is, is a great poet, is the, mm-hmm. is the conclusion, if you like. And, you know, again, mm-hmm. about that particular um, poem, he says that, you know, his explanation for the long life and afterlife of it is that it's one of those poems that seems to provide simple answers to difficult questions, which is not necessarily a good thing, but... He's come to the conclusion that poetry can indeed uplift mm. and sublimate and help mm. us to make things good, but it can also encourage us in maybe false and sentimental ideas and emotions. But the basic thing is, I mean, he died in 1973 at the relatively young age of, he was only, I think, 64 when he died. And much of his best work was produced in the 30s and 40s. But it turns out, he says, and mm. this, these are his words now, he says, it turns out that we need him now as much as ever. And that seems to be a good a good conclusion. Yeah, we do. By the sounds of things, it does seem that we need him now as much as ever. So thank you very much, Peter. I will be taking that book and I will be reading it. It just sounds so interesting. That was Peter Sir speaking about September the 1st, 1939. A book about Auden's poem written by Ian Sansom, not to be confused with C.J. Sansom, the brilliant thriller writer. And I'll be definitely looking forward to reading that book, Peter. It's published by Fourth Estate, isn't it? Published by Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate, Fourth Estate. And as usual, all details on that book will be available on our website, www.booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. And thanks, Peter. We, I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee. And I'm Enda Wiley and I have Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again? Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this podcast, you can go to booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. And yeah, so... We'll be back again next Thursday morning. We'll have the toast on. We'll have the kettle boiling. We will have more books to discuss. And we're looking forward to having you here. So goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.